Father, we thank you so much for this time together tonight. We thank you for uh, the truth of your word and the truth of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for C.S. Lewis and for this wonderful book, The Great Divorce. And we pray that as we study this work, which is designed to point us towards you, that we would be edified, that we would grow in our faith and our knowledge and in our appreciation of what is true and good and beautiful. Lord, we pray that you would point us toward joy and that you would use this material to strengthen our faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you'll notice uh, on the slide here, we have a little uh, binding of a book. Uh, sometime, if you want to come see me in my office, I have a lovely, precious possession that was given to me, which is the first edition of this book that was actually signed by C.S. Lewis. So I keep it hidden, so don't go in there and look for it when I'm not there, uh, but I'll be happy to show it to you sometime if you want to come by. And you'll notice the subtitle, we're calling this The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis on God's Truth or Your Truth. And one of the things that we are going to explore in this book is how having too high a view of your own truth and your own experience and your own view of reality can end up being the stumbling block that keeps you out of the kingdom of God. And we live in a culture right now where the idea of God's truth or any kind of absolute truth is under attack. And so this is a very um, interesting book for this particular cultural moment. So as usual, we have a scripture verse that we're going to begin each class with, and I would invite you um, to say this with me. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, and this is Paul speaking to Timothy, but we can envision Paul and indeed the Lord speaking to us these same words. So please say this with me. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And over the course of this class, you will see why that verse is so very appropriate for this book. So a couple of things, especially for those of you who are new, who are joining us on the live stream or the podcast, uh, I just want to say at the front end, I am delighted that you are here in whatever capacity that may be. If you are fascinated and couldn't wait and want to jump in with both feet and read the book and everything, that's great. If your friend dragged you and you couldn't care less and you can't wait to get home, I'm still delighted you're here. Um, and wherever you fall on that continuum in between is all good. So there are three ways of approaching this class. The first one is what we call being on the beach. You know how it is when you go to the beach, you lie there, you bask in the sun. If you're in a resort, people bring you food and drinks. Um, you don't have to do anything but just lie there. Um, if you're on the beach in this class, that's all you have to do. Lie there, sit there, don't read anything. Don't worry about anything. If you want to make your grocery list, that's fine. Um, I'm just Whatever you want to get through osmosis, that's great. No pressure. Or you can snorkel, which means that on the things that are interesting to you, you really perk up and pay attention. You read the handouts on the chapters on the topics that you like. Um, and that's great, too. Or if you are a nerd like me and you want to scuba dive and go down every rabbit hole and read every handout, including the ones that have 30 footnotes on the end of each page um, and lots of big words, um, that is great, too. So you can approach this at any one of those levels and hopefully get something out of it. Um, I want to encourage you, like so many of Lewis's books, don't sit down and read this book all in one sitting. 
Um, please read it one chapter at a time because there's a lot in here, even though this is a little more accessible than what we studied last term with the abolition of man and that hideous strength, there still is a lot of stuff to chew on in these chapters, and you will get much more out of it if you do it a little bit at a time. And I also think it is a great book to read out loud. Lewis is all about diction and the sound of words, and uh, when you read it out loud, that will give an extra dimension even better if you have somebody else in the class or a friend you want to bring and you read it back and forth out loud to each other. So just keep that in mind. Go to a coffee shop and do that. People will think you're really weird. It'll be great. So um, we're going to listen to a little bit of music. Uh, this is going to be the big challenge of the night um, to see if we can get this to work. So, all right, that worked. That's a good start. And let's see what happens now. Can y'all hear that? So who knows what that is? Yes, it's Jerusalem, which is what? Uh, no, that's a great guess. Uh, no, that's a great guess too. So the composer is uh, Charles Hubert Hastings Perry, but the more interesting question is who wrote the words? So, yes, good job, Chloe. Uh, so Chloe got that uh, the words were written by someone that we're going to talk about in a minute. So you might have thought I was playing that because we've all been watching um, all of the events in England with the death of Queen Elizabeth, but that actually has nothing to do with it. Uh, that would have been a good guess. But the reason I was playing that is that that hymn, which is uh, in some ways the national hymn of England, uh, the words to it were written by William Blake. And William Blake is the person whose work inspired the title of The Great Divorce. So we will uh, come back to that in just a minute. Now, if we are really fortunate, the projector will come back on, and not only that, the slide will reappear. So let's see what happens. Wow, look at that. Okay, so what we're, you can thank Mark, it's not me. So tonight, uh, I'm not sure we're gonna get through all this, but we're gonna try. And um, we're gonna start off talking a little bit about who was C.S. Lewis, because we always have some folks who are new that don't really know, and it's a good review for the rest of us. Then I wanna talk a little bit about why does the Great Divorce Merit Study today? Why would anyone wanna read this book that was written in the 1940s? Um, and then I also want to review the context of what was going on when this book was being written. And then I also want to review the front matter. One of the things when you study C.S. Lewis that uh, is very important is that as Americans, what we usually want to do when we're reading a book is we skip everything until we get to chapter one and then we start with the first paragraph of chapter one. Don't ever do that with a C.S. Lewis book because Lewis packs all sorts of stuff into his title, into his preface, and especially if he's got a quotation on the frontispiece or the title page, he is giving you a window into his heart and mind about why he's writing. So we're gonna spend some time unpacking that. If we are really fortunate tonight, we will maybe get to the first part of the preface, but don't hold your breath. Uh, so just a word, if you haven't gotten the book yet, please don't worry, you won't need it tonight. Um, you probably won't even need it next week. Uh, we will get into the preface for sure next week, uh, but do go ahead and order it uh, if you haven't done that. So a little bit about who was C.S. Lewis. Uh, many of you could probably give this talk by now uh, on this part, but there are a number of things that are really important in understanding who Lewis was and why he is such 
a great uh, figure for us as Christians today. So the first thing, Lewis was not English. A lot of people don't realize that. He was born in Northern Ireland in Belfast. He had a terrible childhood, very dysfunctional, um, lots of family issues. His mother got cancer and died when he was nine years old. His father had a nervous breakdown and shipped him and his brother off to boarding school in another country at the age of nine years old. Uh, the other country was England. Lewis hated England when he first got there. And they couldn't have picked a worse school. It was horrible. And Lewis wrote these plaintive letters home saying, please, please let me out of this school. Um, the headmaster's crazy. Well, as parents, we all know how our children talk about schools and teachers and headmasters. This headmaster actually was crazy and was institutionalized about a year after Lewis was finally withdrawn from the school. Um, but Lewis was brilliant, even as a child. Um, his tutor uh, later at school when he was uh, 16, Lewis was translating Greek tragedies uh, into English, and his tutor, who was a brilliant man, thought that Lewis's translations were better than any of the ones that were out there done by professional scholars. He entered Oxford in 1917. He volunteered uh, as a soldier for World War I and was sent to the front lines of the Battle of the Somme on his 19th birthday. Deeply affected by all sorts of horrible things that happened to him in World War I, including his Batman, um, which is not like the comic book character. A Batman is like your assistant if you're an officer. His Batman saw that there was an incoming uh, piece of uh, explosive and threw himself in front of Lewis, and the man was blown up right in front of Lewis. He never got over that. Uh, but he came back to Oxford straight from the war and then did something amazing uh, that has to be explained. He got what is called a triple first. And in the English educational system, getting a first is like graduating summa cum laude. So he graduated summa cum laude not just in one thing, not just in two things, but in three things, which were the hardest things you could study in Oxford. So the first one is moderations, which is Greek and Latin literature read entirely in Greek and Latin and examined entirely in Greek and Latin, philosophy and ancient history, and English. So he got out of Oxford. He was brilliant. He was proud. He was an evangelical atheist. He thought any smart person should be an atheist, and people who are Christians or anything else were stupid, and he couldn't wait for an opportunity to tell them so. Um, he was very successful. He got elected a fellow of Magdalen College, one of the most prestigious colleges in Oxford. In 1925, he wasn't even 30 years old yet, and he is essentially a professor at the most prestigious university in the world. Um, his first works were published, but he was deeply unhappy. He kept feeling this, uh, what he later called Zainzuk, this longing, these stabs of uncontrollable joy that would just come over him for no reason that he couldn't explain and he didn't understand it. Um, and he met this other fellow who was also brilliant, who was a professor named J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien was deeply Christian, and he was just as evangelical in his Christian faith as Lewis was in his atheism. And Tolkien thought that if you were smart, of course you should be a Christian. And fortunately for all of us, Tolkien was not intimidated or cowed by Lewis's uh, aggressive atheism and his brilliance, and he went after him, um, arguing with him about the gospel, praying for him, and then finally one night um, on Addison's Walk, which is pictured there where I just was a couple of weeks ago, he stole my heart. Um, while they're walking on Addison's Walk, they had the conversation that led to Lewis's conversion to Christianity. Um, they started a little group called the Inklings, which is a group of Christian intellectuals in Oxford, um, and their first work was to revise the English syllabus of Oxford University, which is a pretty big deal. Um, how many of you studied Beowulf or Paradise Lost when you were in school? Uh, you can thank Lewis and Tolkien for that or blame them, depending on your perspective. Um, that syllabus created out of Oxford is what formed the syllabus that most all of us were educated with in English. Those books were not studied generally until then. Um, Lewis then was invited to write the uh, Oxford uh, History of English Literature volume on 
16th century English literature, the golden age, he was considered to be the top scholar, um, even as a very young man. Um, this was a huge project that he started calling the OCAL um, for Oxford History of English Literature. Um, he got prizes for that. He got a prize for another scholarly work called The Allegory of Love um, and started this prolific period of writing. Screwtape Letters coming out in 1941, Mere Christianity broadcast during the Blitz in 1941. He was given an honorary Doctor of Divinity from St. Andrews in 1944, elected a fellow of the Royal Society, showed up on the cover of Time magazine, uh, read the Chronicles of Narnia in the 50s. He was elected to the Order of the British Empire, which is like practically like being knighted, but he turned it down. He didn't want that kind of recognition. Um, I should also say one remarkable fact about him is that he became a hugely best-selling author. He gave away all the money from all his books um, into a blind trust that went to widows and orphans. Uh, he then, uh, in the late 1950s, accepted a chair at Cambridge University and then died November 22nd, 1963, um, the same day that uh, Aldous Huxley and John F. Kennedy died. Uh, he published more than 50 nonfiction works, uh, more than 20 fiction works, hundreds of academic essays, all sorts of things. Very, very prolific. So I want to just talk a little bit about why uh, Lewis and the Great Divorce matter today. And the first thing that I want to talk about before I really get to this slide is that all of those things that we just saw about Lewis made him uniquely positioned to be an apologist for the Christian faith because he had looked at every alternative that was out there and he was smart enough to understand those alternatives and see their pluses and their minuses. And so when he converted to the Christian faith, he was all in. Uh, his personal secretary later called Lewis the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. But one of the most remarkable things about him that's commented on by many people that knew him when he was first at Oxford and then knew him later in his life as a Christian was they described him in his younger days as an obnoxious, arrogant, intellectual prig. Yeah, that's not very flattering. Uh, but then later in life, he was described as being one of the most humble people you could ever imagine meeting. And a lot of people met him and didn't ever even know that he was someone famous. He had friends in Oxford that didn't know he even was a professor. Um, it's just a remarkable thing. But the other thing about Lewis that makes him particularly interesting for us today is he had a deep understanding of the Christian tradition. Not just the Christian faith, but the Christian intellectual tradition and heritage. The whole idea of Christian thought, of what used to be called Christian humanism. Uh, humanism is kind of a bad word in some circles today, but originally it just meant the idea, the robust theology that humans are made in the image of God. Lewis was also very deeply influenced by St. Augustine and his idea of rightly ordered loves, and he was also a huge proponent of what the scholastics, a group of theologians, um, called the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness. And he believed that those were extraordinarily important, not only in living the Christian life, but in sharing the Christian life. And that as we moved into a more and more secular environment, truth, beauty, and goodness were going to become hugely important in trying to communicate the Christian faith. So, uh, Lewis is well positioned as an apologist for us today. Um, the other thing that's interesting about Lewis is that he has broad appeal across age groups. Um, if you are like me, uh, you are one of those people who has been simultaneously anticipating and dreading what Amazon was going to do with the Lord of the Rings series. Uh, you might not know that right before the pandemic, uh, the two biggest blockbuster entertainment deals in the world, not just the United States, in the world, were the selling of the rights for two literary properties. One by, bought by Amazon, the other one bought by Netflix. 
and Amazon bought the rights to Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Netflix bought the rights to C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. And I would love to stand up and say, Jeff Bezos and Amazon want to promote the Christian faith to the world. And Netflix wants to promote the Christian faith to the world. But that would be an untruth. Uh, the reason that they bought those and paid huge sums of money for them is that their market research told them that the most desirable demographic, which is young people, sorry all of y'all who are over 40, um, the most desirable demographic, that's what they want. And it's interesting when you look at things that are being read by people that are under the age of 25, um, people are still reading, believe it or not. Um, in the top 10 things being read are the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings today in 2022. So um, Lewis and Tolkien are both a great bridge from our culture into the Christian faith. And I think part of the reason is that we live in a culture that is full of anxiety and despair, um, where there is no sense of the transcendent or the eternal. People are desperate for beauty and for goodness and for truth. And when you lean into Lewis's world and lean into his work, you see those things, but you see them refracted through the Christian faith and in the way that it's just beautiful. So Lewis is a great author for today and The Great Divorce is a great book for today. And I wanna say uh, a couple of things about the story. First, uh, it's really too bad that the title of this book is The Great Divorce. Um, there are some things that are really good about that that we'll explain in a little bit, but a lot of people don't read this book. It doesn't leap at you off the shelf because you think, who wants to read a book about someone's divorce? And why would you say it was great? So that's a little bit of a problem. Um, the other thing is people get confused about what Lewis is doing in this book. And one of the things we're gonna do and we're gonna to try to do repeatedly is to frame this book properly. Uh, and basically what happens in the story is that the action opens and you're in this gray town where it's raining. And there's this long line of people arguing with each other about getting on the bus that's going to come. And they're arguing and they get in fights and they call each other names and then all of a sudden this bus appears and oddly the bus is beautiful. The bus is beautiful and shining with light and the bus driver is beautiful and shining with light and all the people clamor to get on the bus and there's some arguing back and forth about um, who's gonna get on but eventually people get on the bus and then the bus leaves. But then what happens is very strange. The bus takes flight, it leaves the ground and flies up through the atmosphere out of the gray and goes above the clouds and ends up flying through a blue sky and then off in the distance there's this beautiful golden and green land with snow-capped mountains that it heads toward and it glides into this beautiful land. And the people that are on the bus get off the bus, and it becomes apparent that you can see through them. They are shades or ghosts, and it appears that where they have landed is heaven, and that where they were before was hell. And when they go to heaven, each individual that gets off the bus sees someone coming from a long distance who is shining and beautiful and brilliant and so attractive and beckoning and yet frightening at the same time. And so each person is drawn to their individual person coming toward them, but at the same time terrified. And they find as they try to move on the ground that the grass itself is so beautiful and green and thick and solid that it's hard for them to walk on because they are not solid. And so they each meet these people or angels or bright spirits or whatever you want to call them and they begin to have dialogue. And what you discover is that the bright spirit 
is someone who in the earthly life knew the person that just got off the bus. They were in relationship with each other. And uh, there are interactions where the spirit guides are inviting the people who've been in hell to experience what heaven is like and to join them in heaven. And what happens is over and over and over again, the people that are the shades, the ghosts who came from hell, decide that they'd rather go back to hell than stay in heaven. Now what you don't want to do is start building a theology about heaven and hell that's based on that. Lewis is very clear that he is not making a theological statement about people getting a second chance once they're in hell. That's not what he's doing. But what he's trying to illustrate is the difference between heaven and hell and how important that difference is and why the choices that we make in this life are so very important in terms of our eternal destiny. So we'll, we'll come back to that, but that's the basic plot line. So one of the things that I think is so important about this book today is that there is this emphasis on eternal life um, with a vivid description of how awful hell is and the glorious beauty of heaven that will fill your heart with longing. So many of us have a dumbed down what I call Hallmark card idea of heaven, of little pink angels sitting on puffy clouds playing harps. And we think, that sounds awful. Can you imagine an eternity of being on a puffy pink cloud with a fat angel playing kumbaya on a harp? That is not the biblical image of heaven. And Lewis shows in just beautiful um, terminology about what heaven is like. Um, so that is a good reason to read it. Another thing is that, in case you have not noticed, narcissism and pride are rife in our culture today and if we're honest with ourselves and our own lives. And Lewis shows the consequences of both of these. As one scholar put it, the people in this book prefer their own sinful, obsessive selves to the loss of self, which is necessary before they can be saved. We live in a culture that says you've gotta be all about you, and it really is all about you, and everyone else should be all about you as well. And what Lewis says, that is the road to hell, literally. Another thing is that truth as an absolute is under cultural attack as never before. And this idea of speaking your own truth is held up as the highest good. And what Lewis shows decisively in the story is what happens when you hold on to your own truth and say, that's what I'm going with, and you ignore and refuse to acknowledge God's truth. Another thing that was woven all through this book, starting in the first chapter right through to the end, is uh, right along with the obsession in our culture about rights. We deserve our rights, we deserve this, uh, and uh, we are owed things just because of who we are. Um, and there's not a big focus in our culture right now on servanthood or self-sacrifice. And Lewis talks all about that in the story. Um, there's also, in this story, clarity that there are many situations in life that really are either or. It is not a both and. There is black and white. Everything is not always just gray. And so he puts a big emphasis on that in the story. And then there also is a beautiful rebuttal of the idea of works righteousness that's woven all through this, uh, pointing instead to the glory and the centrality of the cross and Jesus' sacrifice. Alistair McGrath, a great Lewis scholar, put it this way. Lewis's genius lay in his ability to show how a Christian viewpoint was able to offer a more satisfactory explanation of common human experience than its rivals, especially the atheism he had once himself so enthusiastically advocated. So just a little bit about England in wartime. Lewis is writing this book in the worst part of World War II. And if you don't get your head around that, you kind of will miss a lot of what is important in this book. 
1939, Lewis started writing a book called The Problem of Pain. Um, before war was declared, they started evacuating civilians from London. Um, England and France declared war on Germany uh, at the end of that year. Um, rationing began the next year. Lewis's publishing starts the talks on the BBC, uh, which were the basis for mere Christianity. You can see there some of the devastation in central London. This is the BBC headquarters that Lewis went to in the middle of the Blitz to do these live broadcasts, was a major target of the Luftwaffe, and uh, he had to climb over sandbags and soldiers to get to the broadcast studio. It was an enormously brave thing to do. Um, Dunkirk was happening at this time, um, and just that little italicized part, 43,000 civilians were killed in the Blitz, one of every six Londoners was made homeless, and 1.1 million houses and flats were damaged or destroyed. So this is the world Lewis is living in while he's writing. Um, he also is giving talks to the RAF, the Royal Air Force. Um, he is um, delivering these lectures on Milton at University College in Wales. Uh, he organizes, in the midst of all this stuff in the war, the Socratic Club at Oxford, which is a place where you can debate whether Christianity is true or not. Uh, he then uh, writes a preface to Paradise Lost. You might notice the Milton theme coming through here. Um, these books are over on that table if you want to take a look at them. Um, 1943, um, the Allies invade Italy. Uh, the lectures that become Abolition of Man start. And in this year, things are getting so bad in England that all women between 19 and 50 are called up for um, civilian military service, working in aircraft and munitions plants. Um, 1944, the great divorce, which Lewis had been working on the year before, is published as a chapter a week installments um, in the Anglican newspaper, The Guardian. And Lewis also published Paralandra, part of the Space Trilogy, um, the Blitz of Southern England begins this year. Flying bomb and rocket attacks are happening on London all the time. Lewis is continuing the BBC and RAF talks. Um, June 6, 1944 is D-Day. Uh, 1945, that hideous strength is published. Uh, the final German bombing raid happens, VE Day, and then Lewis gives the last RAF talk. Now, why is all that important? because it felt like every single day was potentially the end of the world. Every single day could have been your last. And they were expecting, where Lewis was in Oxford, that they were next on the bomb list all the time. Um, it didn't ever happen. Some people think Hitler wanted to make Oxford his capital because it was so beautiful. We don't really know, but they thought it was gonna be bombed. So this threat of the end of the world um, as they knew it, was hanging over them all the time. And if any of you have ever had a bad medical diagnosis or been close to someone who's got when you know how that just shifts the whole foundation of your world, what you think about, what you think is important, how you want to spend your time, and that had happened pretty much to the whole country of England, but to Lewis in particular. And so his whole world was rocked by this. And so that is why he had this huge burst of writing about why the Christian faith was so important. Because if you strip away all the stuff that we fill our lives with and get down to brass tacks, what you believe about what happens when you die is the most important thing in the world to figure out. If you believe that there's an eternity, it's really important to know what that is all about. So this wartime context fast forwarded, if you will, everything into this um, focus about what does it really mean to live? What does it mean to live for God? Uh, what is the purpose of life on this earth? All of those kinds of ultimate issues came right to the front. But the, the difficult thing for Lewis was that remember, Lewis was a super intellectual. Lewis had been living in Oxford. He is having conversations with people that use eight-syllable words in every sentence. Uh, he's surrounded by this rarefied academic atmosphere. And he had this deep burden to share his Christian faith. And he was invited 
um, to help the chaplains of the Royal Air Force. Now, if you know anything about World War II, you know that the Royal Air Force um, were some of the heroes of World War II, but it was one of the most dangerous things that you could do to be a pilot in the RAF. At one point, the life expectancy of RAF pilots was under six weeks at certain points in the war. And Lewis had to go help these chaplains because the chaplains were basically praying for and giving pep talks to these fighter pilots going off, many of whom never came back. And over and over and over and over again, a place where it's really hard to hold on to Christian hope. But Lewis wanted to do this, and it was exhausting. He was going all over England and Wales giving these talks. Um, but the problem was, as much as his heart was in the right place, he could not communicate with these people. It was as if he was speaking a completely different language. And he has this great little uh, recounting of the April 1941 lecture. Um, the title was Linguistic Analysis and Pauline Soteriology. That's what you want to hear about when you think you might be getting ready to die on a bombing raid. And Lewis said it was a complete failure. And he said that uh, there were people that were fidgeting, not just the soldiers, but even the chaplains. Um, one of the chaplains was doing a crossword puzzle during the talk. It was a complete disaster, and Lewis said, I only take comfort in the fact that God used an ass to convert the prophet. So Lewis was very upset about this, and so he took upon himself to learn how to talk to normal people. And it really was like having to learn a different language. Um, if you're from Charleston, it might be like trying to learn to speak Gullah if you've never done that. Um, so he knew that it was going to be difficult, but he made a very concerted effort. And basically what happened is the, one of the chaplains told him that the people who came, they were not required to come, to some of these talks, but the people that came would very often be made fun of by their fellow uh, RAF folks. And so he said that for the working class men in particular, um, it was a taboo to go to church and you couldn't express your faith or your feelings. And so Lewis thought it might be helpful if I told them something about what it has cost me to be a Christian. So he went in and instead of talking about Pauline soteriology, he stood at the lectern, he was not dressed up, he was in his, uh, he was famous for suits that looked like they should have gone to the cleaners or the junk pile 10 years ago. He wore one of those suits and he stood there and he explained to the listeners that he had to endure ridicule and ostracism from his friends and colleagues at the university for his Christian faith and that they were okay with his being a Christian, but they did not want him to talk about it, much less live it out. He said that had wounded him deeply in his friendships. It had made him really lonely. And then he talked about how that related to Jesus and Jesus's humiliation on the cross, the flies and the beatings. And then he talked about the cost of faith and encouraged the men to keep going and not give up. And this chaplain that heard it, said that he was moved to tears by how vulnerable Lewis was and how he put himself exactly in the shoes of these men who were getting ready to go out and possibly give their lives. And so Lewis developed through these RAF talks, which he was giving week after week after week, an ability to use common language to take high theological truth and translate it into a vernacular that people standing in a line to get on a bus would be able to understand. And we're going to see that in this uh, story as we go through it. And there are uh, a lot of parts that are quite amusing in it because Lewis had a great sense of humor. So the front matter of the book, um, if you brought your book, if you have it, you might just look at the front and you will see the title, and there's a great handout on the title I would encourage you to get. Um, so when this was originally published in the Anglican newspaper, The Guardian, uh, the original title was called Who Goes Home? Well, that's pretty different from The Great Divorce. 
Who Goes Home is a really great title, and the more you read the book, the more you'll understand about why that is. Um, you can also think about in the war, people wanting to go home, the idea of what's your ultimate home, your earthly home or your heavenly home. What about your home that got destroyed in the blitz? Um, this whole idea of home is very rich. But notice the subtitle of Who Goes Home, a new what? Fantasy. Fantasy. This is not a work of theological erudition and instruction trying to tell you how heaven and hell are structured. Um, the other title that was used was The Grand Divorce, A New Fantasy. So this title about the divorce come from, comes from William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And Blake was a very eccentric genius um, living at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century. He was a brilliant writer, a brilliant painter, a poet, an etcher, um, but most people thought he was crazy. Um, Williams, William Wordsworth said he was absolutely mad. Um, but the interesting thing is he has flashes of brilliance in the midst of all the crazy. Uh, if you try to read The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, even C.S. Lewis couldn't figure it out. He was like, this book is crazy. But there were some ideas in it that were clear. Uh, one of the things about William Blake is he was fascinated with the Christian faith, but he also had been deeply influenced by the French Revolution and the Enlightenment. And if you studied the French Revolution, you might remember that did not end well. That did not end well. But he was, William Blake really liked some of the ideas of the French Revolution, and he liked some of the ideas of the Enlightenment, and he liked Christianity. So he was like, let's just have it all. And the problem with that is that they're kind of mutually exclusive ideas. But Blake didn't want to accept that. Um, so particularly when he was young, he had very unorthodox beliefs that he wrote a lot about that really made people think he was a whack job. Uh, one of the things that he said was that any desire that you have, you should go right about fulfilling it, right in the moment. Whatever desire, you can let your mind wander about that. I'm not going to go into it. Uh, but he said, any desire, you had a positive duty to fulfill it right then, because that's what it means to be human. Um, he also said that the idea of any kind of self-sacrifice was anathema and subhuman. Well, that doesn't square very well with Christianity. But he tried to make it all work. Um, he also talked about the fact that there was a lot of energy in hell, and that that was a good thing, and that we, we needed more energy, and he thought religion was kind of dull, and it might need a little, you know, injection of a little hell to liven things up. So, obviously, Blake is somewhat confused, um, but I will say there are some things he wrote that are beautiful. Some of his paintings are beautiful. You'll see on the table over there I brought, there's an edition of Pilgrim's Progress that has beautiful illustrations by Blake of the scenes there that are just wonderful. But Lewis thought the marriage of heaven and hell showed exactly what was going wrong with the culture of the Western world, that we wanted to have it all, that we didn't want to completely give up on Christianity, but we also wanted to be able to do what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it. And that whole Rolling Stones song, you can't always get what you want, well, why not, you know? Let's just have it all. And Lewis thought that that whole cultural view, this kind of syncretism, um, was profoundly dangerous and would result in something that wasn't really Christianity at all. And so he wrote this book where he emphasizes the importance of choice and its consequences. Uh, and you'll notice if you read a lot of Lewis, that theme shows up everywhere. It's all over the Chronicles of Narnia. It's in the Weight of Glory. Um, you'll remember if you were in our Screwtape class how much that's in Screwtape. Uh, this whole idea of choice and its consequences. Lewis says there is indeed a chasm that's fixed between heaven and hell, and he draws out the distinctions between the two. And according to Brenton Dickinson, who's a great Lewis scholar, he said Lewis might have sought this new title um, partially because uh, he 
wrote in a letter to Sister Penelope, who was one of his great correspondents, that Hugo's home appeared to have been taken by a different book. Uh, but much as I sort of like Hugo's home, I think The Great Divorce really is a rich title for this book once you understand what Lewis is trying to get at. The other thing that was going on, some of you know about Charles Williams, who was one of the Inklings, one of Lewis's great friends. He had also written a collection of poetry right around this time um, that was called Divorce. And he, in his poetry, refers to the great divorce as meaning death. So there are multiple layers of this meaning of divorce and the great divorce um, in this book. So the frontispiece, uh, you'll notice, um, this is a little snapshot of that first edition. You'll notice that very prominently under the title, The Great Divorce, what are those two words? Can you read that? A dream, a dream. It does not say The Great Divorce, a guide to the systematic theology of heaven and hell. It says The Great Divorce, a dream. And Lewis is going to later explain that this is what he calls a supposal. And we'll talk more about that later. But you'll also notice that almost as big as the title, and actually taking up more of the page, is a quotation. So this is a Lewis book. We need to pay careful attention to what he puts right on this front page. And what this says, um, is a quotation from an author we've talked about in Lewis classes before, someone named George MacDonald. Both ways. You can't hold on to things that are part of the kingdom of darkness when you are in the kingdom of light. It just doesn't work. You will be pulled apart, torn asunder. And that is a theme he's going to build on over and over again in this book. So a little bit about George MacDonald. George MacDonald's hugely important and understanding Lewis. And this is, uh, y'all are probably, some of you, too young to know, but instead of Google, people used to go to Encyclopedia Britannica for information. Um, sometimes you might even see an encyclopedia somewhere if you're a young person. Take a picture of it. Uh, but in the Britannica, this is what it says about George MacDonald. George MacDonald, 1824 to 1905, novelist of Scottish life, poet, and writer of Christian allegories of man's pilgrimage back to God. He was remembered chiefly, however, for his allegorical fairy stories, which have continued to delight children and their elders. He became a congregational minister, then a freelance preacher and lecturer. In 1855, he wrote a poet, poetic tragedy within and without, and after that, he made literature his profession. Of his literature for adults, Fantasties of fairy romance for men and women, and Lilith are good examples. Although his best-known book for children is At the Back of the North Wind, his best and most enduring works are The Princess and the Goblin, and its sequel, The Princess and Curdie. And if you were in the last class, you will remember that George MacDonald and The Princess and Curdie kept showing up in that hideous strength, which was very odd, but there were some good reasons for it. Um, but Lewis was hugely influenced by George MacDonald. When he was an atheist, Lewis read MacDonald's work, Fantasties, and he said it was blew his mind and that he had uh, actually written a letter to his best friend and said, drop everything you are doing when you get this letter, go to the store, buy this book, and go home and read the whole thing and then write me and tell me what you thought about it. I mean, he was deeply moved by it. And he said later in his life that it baptized his imagination. And Lewis always said that rationality is the um, organ of intellect, but that imagination is the organ of meaning. And that when you divorce those two, you're in big trouble, that you need both rationality and imagination. And he said, MacDonald baptized his imagination. And then he said this in his book about MacDonald, which is over on the table there, I have never concealed the fact that I regard him as my master. Indeed, I fancy I've never written a book in which I did not quote from him. So we're going to hear a lot about MacDonald. MacDonald actually appears in the book as a character 
uh, which is an interesting device. It's like the author walking onto the stage of the play. So the preface, um, we're not going to really go into the preface, but I'm just going to give you a little teaser because I can't help myself because it's so awesome. Uh, but next week, we're going to get into the preface. So this is how the preface starts. Blake wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. If I have written of their divorce, this is not because I think myself a fit antagonist for so great a genius, nor even because I feel at all sure that I know what he meant, i.e. I can't figure this book out either. But in some sense or other, the attempt to make that marriage is perennial. The attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either or. That granted skill and patience and above all, time enough, some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found. That mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without our being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. This belief I take to be a disastrous error. You cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. We are not living in a world where all roads are radii of a circle and where all, if followed long enough, will therefore draw gradually nearer and finally meet at the center. Rather, in a world where every road, after a few miles, forks into two, and each of those into two again, and at each fork, you must make a decision. Even on the biological level, life is not like a pool but like a tree. It does not move toward unity, but away from it. And the creatures grow further apart as they increase in perfection. Good, as it ripens, becomes continually more different, not only from evil, but from other good. Wow. There's a lot in there. We're not going to unpack it tonight. That's just your teaser for next week. So. Um, just before we close, uh, one word, we're going to shift our schedule just a little bit. A number of people have told me that they have to rush through their food too much, and couldn't we please start at 7.15? So we're going to start promptly at 7.15, no matter what else is happening in here at 7.15, we're doing it, um, which means we'll finish about 8.10 each week. So I'm sorry that's a little bit later, but hopefully we can absorb that. So I wanted to just close with this quotation because this book is rich with profound quotations, but I would love for you to say this with me before we close in prayer. Let's say this together. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost. That the kernel of what he was really seeking even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the truth and beauty and goodness of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you that you have a kingdom that rests on foundations that cannot be shaken. And Lord, as we live in this world that is so full of anxiety and strife and confusion and chaos, we pray that you would help us to breathe the clear air of the things of your kingdom. We pray that you would bless our study of this book, that you would use it to draw us more and more deeply into following you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.